Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker tonight is uh, from Christendom College, and he received a Master of Arts degree from the University of Dallas and his licentiate and doctorate degrees in sacred theology from the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. In 1977, Dr. William Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement from teaching in 2015. He currently serves as a scholar in residence at Christendom. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Dr. Marshner is a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we're always delighted to have him back. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. William Marshner. There are, of course, mentions and allusions to Gnosticism throughout the New Testament. St. Paul ran into a version of it when he was preaching in Colossae and uh, found in that city a, uh, um, a Jewish angelology. This was basically Judaism, but emphasizing the work of the angels. And prepare, they were prepared to accept St. Paul's talk about Jesus if you meant the lowest of the angels. Because in their view, no higher angel would have been sent into this world. So you have one of the key points of Gnosticism there already in Colossae, in St. Paul's lifetime. That is, a hatred of the visible world. This place is the garbage heap of the cosmos. No decent divinity would come here. And so Jesus must have been like the lowest of the angels because the others didn't want to get their robes smelly or some such. And to answer those people in a, in a pregnant phrase, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, St. Paul says of our Lord that in him dwells pantopleroma, the whole fullness of Godness bodily. Okay? Pantopleroma teotetos. Theotetos has no iota in it, so it, it's, it's godness, not divinity or godliness, but godness. The whole fullness of godness was in 
Jesus Christ. That means he's above all the angels. And that brings us to another telltale sign of Gnosticism in Colossae in um, the late 50s AD. Namely, the idea that gods or angels or whatever's up there in them, heavenly realms, they sort of um, emerge out of one another in a descending series as new angels or eons or whatever you call them emerge they have a little bit less of divinity about them so divinity comes in degrees okay god the divinity comes in degrees that's why paul does not use the word divinity in this famous passage the whole fullness of being god was in him bodily okay but divinity could come in shares, the shares could thin out, and by the time you got to the bottom, the divinity was really thin. So Paul ran into this Jewish Gnostic angelology and fought it. And by the way, we think that this angelology there in uh, Asia Minor was also influenced from Phrygia, which was part of an area called Galatia in those days, because it had been settled by the Gauls. Now, what do you know about the religion of the ancient Gauls? The Irish, if you will, before they got to Ireland. They had a divinity named the moon. Lunus, ever heard of Lunasa? Lunacy, <laughs> famous Gallic feast, and uh, there was a mysticism and asceticism that was taught by the Druids, and we think this is another source of the ideas that St. Paul ran into in Colossae. In his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20, Paul talks about people who are, um, you know, talks about bewaring Beware of knowledge falsely so-called. Knowledge falsely so-called. The word knowledge there is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. This is a Greek word for knowledge. And Paul is saying, well, this word's in circulation, but watch who's using it and how it's being used. Because this knowledge that they preach is knowledge falsely so-called. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 3 through 9, St. Paul predicts that there is a time coming when people will not willingly hear sound doctrine but will run after strange teachers. People will have what he calls itching ears. They want to hear these novelties. <sighs> what kind of novelties were they? Well, we'll get to that. And St. John 
has his wonderful first epistle that you all know, five chapters long, beautiful thing. Then he has this tiny little second epistle. It's all in one chapter. Second uh, John, verses 7 to 11. He says, Fake teachers come not confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. There's a summary of what these fake teachers are saying. That Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. What in the world is he summarizing in that phrase? Another central trait of Gnosticism. Those who say that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh say that he came looking like a human being, but not really being one, not really having a body. Why wouldn't the Savior really have a body? Answer, because he's supposed to be good, and bodies are the source of all evil. Okay? Your body is the source of evil in you. The really good God wouldn't touch the stuff. So he comes, he has no body, he looks like he does, but he doesn't. Since he only looks like he has a body, of course, he only looks like he suffers. Uh -huh. So the cross is um, uh, a deceit. It's, it's a good show that the Messiah puts on, but he doesn't really suffer at all. Okay? And he certainly doesn't die. Such are the results if you say that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Um, I tell a story about myself. When I was but a young theologian, still in graduate school, I was walking on the streets of New Haven one day, and I ran into this black lady who was handing out tracts. Okay? And she wanted me to give some money to her church or whatever. And uh, I wasn't a Catholic yet. I was sort of well disposed toward anybody who's preaching on the street because <laughs> I had done it myself as a kid. I was sort of well disposed toward that. And uh, said, I said, lady, I'm going to put to you a question. What question? I said to her, do you confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? You say, yes, I do. <coughs> All right, here's five bucks. <laughs> Not understanding the context of that famous verse in Second John, I thought that John was making that the whole test of orthodoxy, you see. But really what he's doing is taking an important slap at the doctrine that Christ's body was not real. Now, we have a word for that in Greek, and it's come into English without much improvement. The word is docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. From the Greek verb to seem. Dokeo. To seem. It should be docetism, but nobody says that. Um, so it, 
it's, it's the doctrine that Christ only seemed man. He's an appearance of man. But he isn't really. And of course, connected with that docetism will be lots of other errors. We have a brief allusion to them in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Quite possibly the last book to be written that's now in the New Testament canon. 2 Peter 2, 1 says, False teachers will come, denying even the Lord who bought them. What are you talking about? False teachers will come, dot, 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 denying even the Lord who bought them. Ah. Elsewhere, St. Peter has written that we are, and Paul wrote, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price, right? And what was that price? The precious blood of Christ. We are bought with his blood. Well, if he didn't have a body, he didn't have any blood. You can't be bought by fake blood. Right? So they're denying the redemption. And hence the Lord who bought them or redeemed them. Okay. We see the first appearances of the heresy, or whatever it is, under its own um, uh, advertisements, when it is attacked by St. Ignatius of Antioch. Now, some of you suffered through a, uh, a lecture series of mine on the uh, early church fathers, and I mentioned Ignatius of Antioch, and I want to remind you of a verse from his letter to the Smyrnaeans. These are the people from Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A, now Izmir in Turkey. His letter to the Smyrnaeans, chapter 7, verse 1, says that these false teachers come and false brethren abstaining from the Eucharist and prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ who suffered for our sins and whom the Father raised up again. Eh? So this was his instruction. How, how do you tell who in your local parish, congregation, community, whatever, is not sound? Watch them. Do they ever go to the Eucharist? Okay? If they never touch the Eucharist, it's because they can't confess that this is the body of Christ. Now, I'm sorry that so few of our Protestant brethren have ever run into Gnosticism. If they had, they would understand our doctrine of the Eucharist. Of course we taught from the very beginning something like transubstantiation. This becomes the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And that was a, a sign that he had flesh, right? 
So it's a, the Eucharist it was medicine against docetism, as well as medicine against mortality. Um, St. Ignatius says that these people do not confess that um, the Lord is come in the flesh. They don't admit that the Eucharist is the body of Christ. And they don't admit that he suffered for our sins because if you don't have a body, you can't very well suffer in it. And they don't believe that God the Father raised him up because if the body is a bad thing to have, why would you want it back? Okay? And that reminds me of some heretics that St. Paul ran into in Corinth who were already saying there is no resurrection. Okay? Okay. In addition to denying the redemption, the resurrection, in consequence of denying the reality of the Incarnation, these people also refuse to have any devotion to the Blessed Virgin. Okay? If he had no body, she is not his mother. Okay? He owes nothing to her. Gnostics could say, well, um, he um, chose to come into the world uh, through her, but owing nothing to her, okay? Like the sun chooses to shine through a window, and she happened to be the window, okay? Um, but there is the source of our Catholic insistence from the second century, on the importance of the Blessed Virgin. Once again, the Protestant churches, having not run into Gnosticism in their own brief history, don't understand our uh, uh, attachment of such importance to Our Lady, her role in redeeming us. All right? Now then, I want to begin filling in the outline of Gnostic doctrine. And I'm going to begin with Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. Um, he um, uh, was living in Samaria and heard these rumors that the apostles were doing great wonders and miracles and signs and things, okay? And you have to know that Simon, called the magician, was, like all magicians, a showman, okay? He's looking for a, he's looking for a shtick. He wants an act. So... What are these apostles doing? So he finds out some stories about healings and whatnot. And um, so in Acts 8, 6, we have the story of how he approached St. Peter and offered him money. 
Show me these. Show me how you do that stuff. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you. Whereas he assumes that they've got their own shtick. They've got their act. He wants in on it. This is a powerful act. And of course, they told him to, um, well, get lost. <laughs> After being rebuffed by St. Peter, Simon picked up a girlfriend. Yes. He found her in the city of Tyre, which is on the coast of Lebanon, T-Y-R-E, Tyre. And gave her the name Helen, or maybe she had that name, I don't know, Helen. Girlfriend Helen. And he developed a nice mythology about her. He identified her with the lost sheep whom Jesus came to find. Now Simon decided that this Jesus guy was getting such a good uh, sales pitch from the apostles that he was going to claim to be the Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer. Okay, And who was going to be the first and chiefest beneficiary of his saving activity? His girlfriend. Okay, hi honey. How would you like to be the first of the elect? Oh, I'd like that, Simon. So, it, it, yeah, I, I don't want to imagine pillow talk between those two. <laughs> it must have been something rich. Anyway, from there, Simon developed his act. And I'm going to present it to you in one, two, three, four, five, six capsules. Okay, these are the capsules that always go into the Gnostic prescription. These are the pills that go into it. These are the pills that are supposed to make you wise. Okay, like all subsequent Gnostics, Simon begins with a... Uh, how to put this, a potential God, a God who is in potency to be all things, okay? Simon's God was an immaterial fire, and the source, well, he's like fire, he's immaterial, see, so he's not really fire, but he's like fire, because he's real thin and hot. And um, he's the source of all things because he's infinite power. He can become anything. Okay? He's got infinite potential. There you go. And Simon got this description from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, where um, God talks about being a consuming fire. So, I mean, uh, remember he's from Samaria. He knows something about the Sumerian version, Sumerian version of the Old Testament and has picked up some of these ideas. He can talk some Bible talk when he wants to. Now then, 
this primordial fire, first source of all things, was two-sided. Hello? Twofold. And this is the way it is with all the Gnostic divinities. They got two sides to them, a male side and a female side. Okay? Well, the primordial fire was two-sided too. And the two sides were called visible and invisible. Okay? Here, uh, Simon, who was an educated chap, was drawing on Plato's doctrine of sense objects, sensible things, versus intelligible things. So the primordial fire is the source of all visible things, ultimately, and of all intelligible things, like the Platonic ideas. He's perfect intelligence. And Simon calls him that which is, was, and shall be. Great. However, he shall not be alone. This primordial fire, using, I guess, its two sides, manages to give rise to six eons. Yes. A-I-O-N-S. Eons. The Greek word here is ion, A-I-O-N. It means an age. And in the Gnostic vocabulary of the time, eon became a name for a higher angel-like power. Okay? And the primitive fire, the first, I call him fire father, um, emanated six eons in three pairs, of course. One male, one female. Three pairs. Who were the six eons that came from the first source of all things? Answer. First pair is mind and thought. Nous and epinoia. Mind and thought. Yeah. Second pair, word and name. Phone and onoma. Third pair, logic and passion. Yeah, that was it. Those are the six eons. And if nothing else had ever happened in the prehistory of the cosmos, all would have been well, because these eons were blessed and uh, embraced by the Fire Father, and everything was warm and cozy. However, mind got uppity, and mind gave birth to Sige. S-I-G, long E. Greek fans, what is Sige? Mind gave birth to silence. Okay? And silence becomes the source of another six eons. Okay? 
Never mind multiplication. You, you, you wouldn't, you'd run out of numbers. Um, silence is also called the father by Simon and other places. Silence is also called the one who is, was, and will be. And of course, silence is at once male and female. Hermaphroditic silence. Well, if I were hermaphrodite, I'd be quiet about it too. Never mind. Uh, male and female. And silence makes the seventh of the first emanations. You've got six plus silence, which is seven. <coughs> Magic, biblical number, seven. And that finishes up the first uh, emanation of things. Now then, from silence come, as I say, three more emanations. Three more pairs. Okay, pair number one, heaven and earth. Not the material heaven and earth, God forbid. But something higher than that. I guess the general idea of heaven, and the general, never mind. Heaven and earth, sun and moon, air and water. Okay? Now I leave it up to you to guess which of those in each pair is male and which is female. Uh, air, air and water and uh, sun and moon and uh, heavens and earth. And then, once again, a funny thing happens and a seventh emanation pops out. Who's the seventh? Answer, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit. How'd he get in here? Well, once you've got uh, water, uh, something has to, the Bible says the Spirit was upon the waters. So there it is. Once you've got water, you've got to have the Holy Spirit to ride the water. There you go. All right. Now there's a problem about these new eons, heaven and earth and air and water and all that. None of them know anything about Firefather, the highest of all, the first of all. They don't know anything about that stuff. Why? Because they came from silence. Silence was closed-lipped about her origin. Silence reveals nothing. So the second team, the junior varsity eons, don't know about the really highest beings. And that's a tragedy. Because then, thought does a bad thing. Remember we had mind and thought way back in the beginning? Mind stayed good. But thought, epinoia, oh, you know, your thoughts can get you into trouble. I don't know. Thought decided to act up. He abandoned fire father and turned toward the lower eons. Yes. Thought comes to visit eh, heaven and earth, 
air and water. And when he's among them, he makes the angels and the powers. And the angels and the powers in turn make heaven and earth. Okay? So unlike the Bible where it just begins, God created heaven and earth, simple. No, 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 no. You need a long descending process. And behind the origin of the heavens and the earth that we know about, the real heavens, the real earth, the material heaven, there has to be a major screw-up. Okay? Otherwise, matter would never have originated. This time, the major screw-up is the misconduct of thought. Yes. The angels liked the looks of thought. They were his first products, you know. And the angels said, oh man, thought, you are terrific. You are so beautiful. We just love you all to pieces. Please stay here with us. But thought didn't want to stay. No. Epinoia slash thought wanted to go back. Wanted to go back upstairs to be with Firefather and so on. And so, they trapped him. Yes. The angels captured thought. Once they had met it, they couldn't do without it. You addicted to thinking? Well, these guys were. <laughs> They couldn't let him go again. No, you can't go back up there. You are here with us. And because they didn't know anything about higher powers, they thought that they were themselves self-generated from thought. They thought they were uncreated, so they were prideful and wrong, and, and they tortured poor thought. They finally did the worst thing they could imagine. They took thought and captured it in a body, a human body. Oh, captured thought in a human body. Great story, Simon. You're going to get contributions out of that. <laughs> but it gets better. The Greek word thought, I told you, epinoia, or ennoia, ends in an A, it's a feminine noun. So in that, in that first uh, pair of um, eons, to emanate, mind and thought, thought's the girl. Aha. Uh -huh. And so when thought is put into a human body, she's a woman. Yes. And so thought has been in the world ever since passing from woman to woman. Yes. She was in Helena Troy. That's why Helen was so pretty and there was a war over her. And the centuries go on and we get down to the days of Simon himself and by George, thought is once again incarnate in his Helen. Aha. Hello, thought of my heart. Yes, you're my first thought ever. Never mind. Um, Helen 
his Helen is thought. But wait a minute, wasn't thought captured by the angels? Yeah. Wasn't thought really wanting to go back to Firefather? Yeah. So thought is the lost sheep. So Helen gets to be the lost sheep talked about in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Look, if you're dealing with people who have no biblical education, who haven't decided yet whether they're, whether they're pagan or Catholic or what they are, you can tell them anything. And you can use any vocabulary that's in circulation these days and convince them of the wildest junk. So Helen is now the lost sheep. And so we come to uh, the making of man. I forgot to mention that. Wouldn't be any women without having man having been created. Well, one of those bad, one of those bad angels, probably the worst of the bad angels, who tried to hold on to thought and keep thought from going up again, was called Demiurge. That means the maker of things. Demiurge made man and woman. From what? From dust. Hello, Genesis. Simon knew that much. But man made by the Demiurge was vitiated from the beginning because they had a bad maker. Yes. Demiurge was the worst of the angels. And um, thought has to be freed from the female body, which I've not explained. That was a mistake of bad old demiurge. And um, thought has to be liberated from that. And that brings us to soteriology. Remember, Simon puts himself forward as the real savior. Not that Jesus guy you heard about. He's pretty good too, but, but I'm the real. Jesus, the real savior, or Simon, whatever he calls himself, frees thought from the body of Helen. How did he do that? I need to tell you now about morals. Okay, what do you have to do to be saved? Answer, you have to believe in Simon and Helen. That's it. Well, don't I have to do good works or something? No. Because you're not saved by deeds, you're saved by gnosis, knowledge. Once you're let in on the secret, you're saved. Once you have faith in Simon and Helen, you are saved. Well, what am I saved from? Remember, there's no resurrection. So what am I saved from? Oh, 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 oh. Well, when all the world returns to the fire of fire father, you are going to take up residence among the top divinities. You're going to be up there. In some versions of the story, you're going to marry up there. Marry an angel or something anyway. Of course, the angels have to be redeemed by then. But you've got a cosmic problem. It manifests itself in the bad behavior of man. Somebody up there takes pity 
And Simon comes, and Simon is going to rescue, rescue poor thought from the body of Helen. The morals don't need to do anything. The mere knowledge is going to save you. Okay. Well, uh, well, wait a minute. If the body is destined to perish, and there's no resurrection, so on, what should I do with it in the meantime? Answer, whatever the hell you please. Uh -huh. Whatever you want to do with your body is fine. It's just going to the worms. It's just going to the fire. And God doesn't, I mean, <laughs> Jesus, Simon, doesn't require any good works from you. Okay? Except believing in him. That's it. Salvation by faith alone, shall we say? You don't have to do one thing. Just believe. And you're in like Flint. And you're going to end up in heaven, I don't know, married to something. Something juicy, no doubt. Okay. Those are the capsules, the pills, that comprise the Gnostic prescription the theogony, origin of the gods, the cosmology, origin of the universe, the uh, cosmology, the origin of, um, uh, I said that already, um, creation of man and woman, the creation, um, the uh, soteriology, how man gets saved, and the eschatology, and then a little capsule, not much in it, called morality. Okay. Simon had a disciple named Menander. He got an idea of how to get more money out of the scheme. He had statues made of Simon and Helen. Buy these statues. Believe in these guys. Buy these statues and you will be saved. Same message except a new way to get some profit out of it. Oh, 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 oh. And the, 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 the Christians were pushing, the, the ones who turned away Simon, they were pushing something called baptism. We, we need something like that. So Menander came up with a, um, uh, a kind of baptism if you had his baptism, you would be able to learn magic. Apparently, Menander was an accomplished magician, black hat and everything. Accomplished magician, you want to learn magic? Buy my statues and take my baptism. And you're going to be taught magic by thought himself. Herself, I mean, yeah, thought herself. Now that she's free of the body of hell, and she can come teach you. Magic. You wonder how in the world these guys could wow people, but they had, they had a hat full of magic tricks and preached up, you know, you can learn this stuff too. And that brings me to the first important, really important, um, Gnostic who appeared in the history of the West, and that's Saturninus,
He taught in Antioch. He became the father of Syrian Gnosticism. And um, once again, the world was created by the angels, as I said before. The Demiurge is one of the angels. But now we get a new, a new wrinkle. This Demiurge, who was like the worst of the angels, was the god of the Jews. Because remember, the Old Testament was a very prestigious book in the first century, second century AD, because it was reputed to be as old as the hills, the oldest book ever written. And uh, people even believed that, that uh, Plato got his ideas from Moses. So it was old. And so it was an authoritative sort of a thing. And so you had to, you had to account for what's in there. Who did he come from? God of the Jews. Uh, well, he says he made heaven and earth. All right, he did. He confessed it. He made heaven and earth. So he's the demiurge. And then, what else did the God of the Jews do that made him famous? Don't say that he sent Jesus. That didn't make him famous. <laughs> Don't say that he took the Jews through the Red Sea. Why did, he, why did he want them to get through the Red Sea? To get to Mount Sinai. What was he going to do for them on Mount Sinai? Answer! Reveal the law! <laughs> now we got it. The chief bad guy among the eons, the God of the Jews, is the author of the law, and therefore the moral law is evil. There we go. There is where Gnosticism touches the favorite superstitions of modern man. Okay? Ever since the 1920s, Western intellectuals have been at war with Christianity over our morals. They don't care about the Trinity anymore, any of that. It's our morals that they hate. Our morals make people sick. We get mental problems. If we, if, if, if we try to be chased, we're going to go, go nuts, etc., etc., etc. So the law is the quintessence of bad advice. Okay? And now I'm going to finish here because we're out of time, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, well. I'm about to finish anyway. Here is where Gnosticism connects to Islam. Okay? Islam had repudiated the natural law. Had no use for it. Islam didn't know anything about it. People down there in the bottom of Arabia didn't have philosophy and natural law. Like, yeah. But they maintained that all true morality was taught by God. It's all revealed. Okay, so we have a revelation that tells us what to do. Now, what if you decide that the revelation is from a bad God? What if you decide that revealed ethics is not to be followed? You and I would say, well, at least go back to natural law ethics. Follow your reason. Oops! Who produced nature? Bad angels produced nature. 
old demiurge produced nature. So nature's no safe guide either. Okay? So the law of nature and the law revealed in the Old Testament are both to be repudiated. Neither can correct the other. They are both to be thrown out and replaced by the new revelation. Hello, my name's Simon. I got my girlfriend here. We are the latest. And you join up with us, you're going to know everything that's said. Okay? And what do we tell you to do? Won't you please? Because the knowledge of us is going to save you. Do you need to do charitable works for your neighbor? Nope. You need to be good? Nope. You need to give alms? Nope. You just need to know. And there it is. Now, Islam says, Islam is not Gnostic, don't get me wrong, but it resembles Gnosticism in this respect. Islam says, you do not know what is good for you. No. You cannot follow your reason. You do not know what is good for you. You think life is good for you? No. Allah alone knows what is good for you. Like Simon, alone knows what is good for you. And Simon said, don't listen to those Jews. Don't listen to nature, bad stuff. Listen only to the voice of my God. And my God says, die. Is better for you. Suffer martyrdom is better for you. Etc., etc., etc. So the anti-life, oh, oh, and of course, you know, I, I didn't even talk about don't procreate. That was another aspect of it. It becomes more clear as Gnosticism gets older. Um, I said, uh, what do you want to do with, what, what, what can you do with your body, anything you please, except one thing, you must not have children. Okay? No. Anything but that. You want to have fun? Have fun! You want to do kinky stuff? Kink away! But, uh, no kids. Because kids involve matter and matter is evil. Okay? And who knows, there might be another woman born someday who would harbor thought. Whoops. And then Helen would lose money. I, I, Simon would lose money. I don't know. But all of these guys were money makers, hucksters, fakers. And um, I think I've about run through the points I wanted to cover now. The lack of any real morals, the lack of any guidance from natural law, and the, uh, the, the turn against matter and hence against reproduction and the incarnation and against Our Lady and against the Eucharist. What have I left out? That's about it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.
and may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.